We continue our series today on living between two worlds in part three. Pull out your outline and let's get moving because I went long in the first service. So uh, just call wherever you were going for lunch today. Give them a buzz and let them know you're going to be about, uh, I don't know, two hours late or so. Uh, We'll try to tighten it up in the second service, but get ready to take some notes. Uh, We're talking today about a new perspective on holiness, and we're in part three of our series on First and Second Peter. First, and the the, uh, the books of First and Second Peter, the letters were written to the early church because the early church was living in the tension between two worlds, between this world that we live in now, that is a place of hardship, and the new world which is to come, which is a place of hope. If we look at the book of Revelation, we can say the new heaven and the new earth are a great hopeful place where everything will be set right the way it's intended to be. But for now, we live in this broken place between two worlds, between the perfect world that God created in the beginning and the perfect world that's come, we live in this broken place of interchange between hardship and hope. And in the middle of all of that, the author of First Peter writes this in First Peter 1.16. In the midst of all of that tension, he writes this phrase that has unsettled me for some years. Be holy because I am holy. Be holy as God is holy. I don't know about you, but I don't do good being holy in the midst of tension. The best of me often doesn't come out in tense situations. When I'm driving back and forth to work in the tension of the morning, I drive on 581 to Route 15 South and come here. And I can't believe how many idiots there are on the road. Amen. My problem is I don't realize I'm one of them. But in the midst of that tension, how am I supposed to be a a holy person? I mean, that's just a a small, small segment of my life, that driving. But when you're under tension, it's hard to be holy, isn't it? It's hard to do the right thing. It's hard to behave the right way. It's hard to act the right way. You know, I grew up in a church and in a, a town where holiness was defined by a list of things that usually you didn't do. And you know, this whole idea of attaining to a certain uh, standard is not just something that's in the church, it's also outside the church. And in the town, in the church that I grew up in, especially the church that I grew up in, there was this whole idea of keeping your nose clean. I think that was one of my dad's favorite phrases to me growing up. Five kids in the family, he just looked at the youngest guy and said, just keep your nose clean. Just go to school and keep your nose clean. Just go to church and keep your nose clean. When you're riding your bike this afternoon, just keep your nose clean. In other words, don't get any any problems that come back to me this afternoon, or you have really had it. That's what keep your nose clean meant. And many times we live our life that way. We even live our life that way, and we see God that way. We see God as saying to us, keep your nose clean. Keep everything cleaned up. Keep the rules And, you know, there's this whole thing called living your life by something called a bounded set or living your life by a centered set. I grew up in more of a bounded set background, and probably most of you did too. Most of the United States of America operates on this whole idea of a bounded set. Sociologists and anthropologists who have done studies tell us that. And bounded set thinking is kind of like this. There's this whole list of things that you don't do in order to keep your nose clean. And in the church, it looks like this. You don't drink, you don't smoke, 
You don't dance. You don't laugh. You don't feel. You don't smile. You don't get too carried away. You keep everything under your control. And we begin to see us being under our control as holiness. And that's dangerous. Because that's not what the Bible says holiness is. One of my mentors, Terry Wardler, has written a book about this whole idea of the bounded set, centered set. It's on the back of your outline. If you flip your outline over there, you can see the name of the book that Terry wrote. And in the, in the beginning of that book, he talks about this whole tension between living by a bounded set and a centered set. And a bounded set living is, of course, where we have these sets of rules, guidance, regulations. And in there, we're just trying to keep those rules or we're trying to keep from breaking those rules so that we're behaving properly and so that we belong. We see that in some ways as belonging. I have doubled the charts up today because it's Father's Day. For the dads, I'm bringing two charts to you today, dads. You know, maybe this is why the service took so long in the first service. But here we have the bounded set. Over here we have bounded set living. And in bounded set living, it's all about belief, believing the right things. And here's belief. We have belief here. Okay. And belief leads to, we believe, right behaviors. And what we believe and how we behave is important. But the problem with that is that in this construct of belief and behavior, we create a wall or a box for us that when we believe the right things and we behave the right way, we belong to the right group. We belong and other people are out. So this way of thinking creates an us and them mentality all the time. This isn't just prevalent in the church. It's also prevalent in communities. I can remember when my daughter was in ninth grade and she was trying out for the volleyball team. She went to the tryouts. I watched her. Of course, I'm totally objective. And I noted she's better than some of the seniors. She's better than some of the seniors. But then when she was, quote unquote, interviewed for the team, and I asked her what the questions were, all the questions were about who were your parents? What are their names? What are they connected to in the community? You know, she didn't even make that team. The bounded set, centered set, isn't just something that happens in the church. It happens in our community. Have you ever been part of a community where you moved in and you weren't known? That has happened to us a number of times. We've had to move. If you've never moved from South Central Pennsylvania, you should do yourself a favor and just move across town. Because you'll encounter this. You'll encounter that you're not in yet and you're out. And there are certain things that you need to believe and certain ways that you need to behave and certain things you need to own and act in order to belong to the in group. This happens in the church. The second way of thinking is the centered set. And in the centered set of thinking, because I can't draw real well, I'm just, I can't draw the person of Jesus for you. I wish I could. My mother had a photograph of him next to her bed. 
And I don't know where she got it at. If anybody knows where my mom got that photograph at, uh, please let me know. But instead of that photograph of Jesus, I'm just going to draw a cross there. Because the central work of Jesus was to come and to give himself as a substitutionary atonement on the cross for us. Okay? And centered set thinking, Jesus is at the middle of life. Not right rules, not me just belonging isn't the center of life. The center of life is Christ. And around that cross, there are a number of different parts of life, okay? There's our family. There's something called our sexuality. There's parenting. How many dots? I one, two, three, four, eight, nine. Let's make it nine. We'll do nine dots here, okay? So there's things like our, our family. There's things like our job. There's things like our sexuality that I mentioned. There's things like um, our relationship with God himself. There's things like our relationship with our church family and how we relate to them. These are all bigger parts of life, bigger sections of life. And then there's one of these dots that represents kind of the junk drawer of life. How many of you have a junk drawer at home? Or you have a hallway closet? Everybody's coming over. Let's duct tape the doors closed. Stuff's busting out. Well, in our lives, in general, we have a, a hall closet. We have things that we kind of keep hidden. Even things that we're trying to hide from God. Even though God knows everything, says in Scripture that everything's laid bare before him, there's still things that we try to keep nestled away and squirreled away from God, isn't there? Certain parts of us, things we don't like about ourselves, habits and attitudes and things like that that we don't know what to do with, and so we just keep them squirreled away from God. But each part of this life, in the centered set, either, either the thing is going away from God, toward God, it may be sliding by God or Christ. It may be it was going this way and it's turning back around toward God. Okay, we have a couple of those things doing that. But in the centered set, the idea is this. The idea is to come under the leadership of Jesus Christ and be so engaged and enraptured in a relationship with him that all of these dots and all the arrows start to be informed and turn toward the centered set of the cross. And so Peter writes to the early church and he says to them, there's some confusion about whether you're to live by a bounded set or a centered set. And there's some confusion because a lot of people around you are of Jewish origin and they say if you keep the Ten Commandments, if you keep the law of God, then you are right, you belong. But they're living in in the wrong way. Their way of living is by a bounded set, not the centered set, because they don't know the Savior yet. So don't give in to their old way of thinking. Keep your mind steady. Be holy as God is holy by following the holy God who gave himself holy as a sacrifice for you to heal your wounds Forgive your sin, turn all of your life around toward the cross in a centered set. And you can be holy as Jesus is holy by wholly following him. Not by keeping the rules and laws of other people. Peter was saying we need an internal GPS system. Not an external road atlas. But an internal system that keeps us driving toward true north by following Jesus. 
And so we're going to talk for the rest of our time here about what it looks like to exchange the bounded set for the centered set by looking at three things that Peter says about the centered set and centered set holy living in a world where you're living between two worlds. And there's lots of tension, okay? And the first thing that he teaches us is this. What does the centered set living look like? It's active and it's not passive. It is active and not passive. Because you could, you could begin to think, well, I don't have to keep these rules or regulations or whatever, so I don't have to do anything. I don't have to be engaged in holiness. Holiness just kind of happens or doesn't happen. But I don't need to engage in that. But that's not what he says. He says in, in verse 14, as obedient children, circle that word obedient, underline children. What do children do? They follow their father. Do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. And circle the word ignorance, because we're going to talk about those two words, obedience and ignorance. Obedience is important. There's two key words in this passage. And Paul is saying here, he's using kind of this analogy of an obedient child. When a child's obedient to their parent, they learn how to be conformed to the parent's teaching and conformed, and they actually become a small rendition of the parent by watching their life. And that's what he's saying. He said, when you raise children, you teach them, you image, you, you do things, you're a, you're a type, you're an example, and as they're following your example, they become a little you. They become conformed to some extent to the image of you. They become like you. And their beliefs and their behaviors and their actions and the direction of their life they become like you. And so he's saying, this is the same way it is with Father God. With Father God, we need to be obedient children, not wayward children. You know, we also have children that can be what? Wayward. Who don't emulate what you emulate. That don't believe what you believe. That reject what you believe. Right? Because they have what? The same thing we do. A will. And they can choose whether to be obedient or not. We have the same thing. We can choose to be obedient or not to the Father. And so holiness is about being proactive and active. As a matter of fact, the word that's used here for obedience would probably best be translated from the original text of Scripture into our vernacular by a word called fully cooperating. Fully cooperating. Doesn't mean to cooperate a little. Doesn't mean to cooperate 50%. It means fully cooperating is what that word means. And so Peter is saying, if you're going to live a holy life, you're going to be holy as God is holy. You're going to need to fully cooperate with God. Because he's the God of holiness. He's the God of the cross. He's the God who can bring all these things and turn all these arrows around and help you live a centered, set life, following Jesus on a life-changing journey until you leave this life or he returns for you. And he'll help you do that. When you're obedient, when you're fully cooperating. The second word that he uses here that we have to understand is this. The second word is ignorance. Now, I think that word sounds even harsh or brutal. Kind of just saying it out loud. Like, if, if somebody said to me today, Pastor, I liked your sermon, but I think you were ignorant about... <laughs> I probably wouldn't feel like, well, go ahead and fill me in. Right? It just doesn't feel... You know, it, doesn't, it just doesn't feel good. But the truth is, when we're ignorant as children, there's certain things growing up as children that we just don't know about yet, right? 
So when we're growing up as children, there's certain things we don't know about yet, which are like big tractor trailer trucks coming down the street. And so we tell the child, stay on the curb and hold my hand. Because they have no idea that that tractor trailer truck, if they stepped in front of it, could just squash them flat. They've watched way too many cartoons, and they think if they get hit, they'll get squashed flat, they'll spring back up like an accordion, and they'll be fine. Because they're what? They're ignorant. They're not even being wayward. They're just ignorant. And Peter uses this word. He said, once you were ignorant of the power of the cross, but now you're not. You know the power of the cross, so don't go to living by a bounded set. Go back to the power of the atoning work of the cross and let it inform you and teach you and train you in holiness. It's a different perspective. It's a biblical perspective. It's God's perspective on holiness. No one likes to feel like they're clueless or out to lunch. No one likes to feel that way. I've been rereading a book that I had to read last year called Leadership on the Line. The intention of the book is to help leaders in the marketplace avoid destruction and failure. The preface of the book says that somewhere roughly around 70% of corporate leaders aren't making it. By not making it, it means they're losing their job after three or four years, they're getting fired. Even though they rose up to the level of leading a large corporation, they can't lead it long term. And it's having devastating effects on our economy because we don't have good leadership at the top of a lot of our corporations. And so they're wondering, you know, why this is. So they did a bunch of studies to figure out why these leaders who were crashing and burning, and they interviewed a bunch of them and found out that the majority of them suffered from something we just talked about, ignorance. They were ignorant of how they came across in leadership situations. They were ignorant of their own devices and the things that they did as leaders that caused the corporation to fail and caused the staff to rebel and caused things not to be sold in the marketplace well. They were ignorant of how they interacted with other corporations who they could have teamed with in order to have a better product out there and how to market their product better. And how to, how they were ignorant about how to deal in a different culture with that same product that sold really well in the United States but needed to be marketed a different way because there were different cultural norms over there. And so they did this study and they came up with this whole analogy, this whole word picture of being in a dance. And they said that leadership is kind of like being on this huge dance floor. And on this dance floor, we're dancing with different people and we're busting a move with this person. And then we move over to this person and we're doing the leadership dance with them. And, and, uh, but there's limitations to that. And the limitation is I can only dance with so many people at once. I, I can't even see all the dancers. There's dancers over there that are doing dances I've never even seen. I don't even know their moves. I don't even know them because I can't get around the dance floor. The other thing that I can't see, and this is what they really came back to, was this. You can't see yourself. You really don't know what you look like when you're dancing on the dance floor. And so they came up with this idea of you have to get up onto the balcony and look down and see what you look like when you're dancing the leadership dance. Okay? In order to know what you're doing so that you're not ignorant of what you're doing and you're filled in and you can see what's going on in your interchange with other people 
They put it this way in their book. Here's a quote. The goal of this process is to move back and forth between the dance floor and the balcony, making interventions, observing your impact in real time, and then returning to the action. The goal is to come as close as you can to being in both places simultaneously. That is, watching the action, including your own, and being back up on the balcony and then getting back into the dance. This is the most crucial point of this process. When you, observe, when you observe from the balcony, you must see yourself as well as the other participants. Perhaps this is the hardest task of all, though, to see yourself objectively. Now, what in the world does this have to do with holiness, you may ask? What in the world does it have to do leaders who are failing in the U.S. because they're out to lunch? We could have told them that. Why did they need a book? Right? Look at the economy. You know, using when economy's bad, it's because the leadership's bad. Okay? So, what's the big deal? Here's the deal. This is the same idea of getting on the balcony with the Holy Spirit of God. When you and I are in the dance of holiness with one another, when you and I are learning how to interchange with other people and our family and our family of God... We have to be able to get up on the balcony and see what we look like in the dance. And the only way we can do that is through the power of the Holy Spirit making us aware. There's places in Scripture where it tells us what? To be sober-minded. To act with so. How do you do that? You can't do that on your own. I can't do that on my own. We need the help of the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will what? Lead you into all truth. All truth about others and all truth about yourself and all truth about God. If you read about the person and work of the Holy Spirit in John 14, 15, and 16, his whole work is to come and coach us in the dance of holiness between two worlds. Because it says in John 14, 15, and 16, and Jesus had great, Jesus, if anybody knew what to teach about the Holy Spirit, it was Jesus. He will only come and speak of me. He will constantly point you toward the centered set. And he will constantly tear down all of you behaving on your own, you atoning for your own sin, you doing it your own way. The Spirit will constantly convict you of sin and righteousness by pointing you to Jesus and he will wreck your bounded set every time he gets a chance to do it by pointing you to Christ and his salvation and his holiness. And so we need the guidance of the Spirit to help us get on that balcony. We can't live a holy life without the person and work of the Holy Spirit and being totally cooperating so that we're not living in ignorance. Because when we live in ignorance, others pay the price for our sin. We pay the price for our sin, but Jesus doesn't because we're walking in ignorance. So number two, what does centered set living look like? Number two, Peter says, it's rooted in the eternal, not the temporal. It's rooted in the eternal, not the temporal. In other words, the temporal is Beliefs and behaviors can change, right? These are temporary. These are temporary things. Depending on where we live around the world, your beliefs and behaviors, even as a Christian, can change depending on the culture, what you do, right? 
Exactly. That's why we have missionaries that go over and contextualize the gospel into other places. Right? So this is temporal. This is based on the eternal. Why? Because the atoning work of Christ is central to it. Listen to what he says about the atoning work of Christ. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. You were bought with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world. So before the creation of the world, God knew that you and I would struggle to live between two worlds. And when he, he knew we would struggle to live a life of holiness under the pressure that we have in our life. And so instead of sending a set of rules and a bounded set, he sent his son Christ. Sinless God-man to take our place on the cross. And it is based on the eternal. It's rooted in the eternal. Holiness was God's plan for us from the beginning. From the beginning. To be holy as he is holy. To be whole as God is holy. To be totally and fully healed. And so that's why Christianity talks about this thing of substitutionary atonement. It's what sets Christianity apart from all other belief systems. This last week I was just reviewing a book. It's a good one. It's called, So What's the Difference? And it reviews about 20 different belief systems and worldviews from around the world. And if you read through it, Pretty quickly, if you sit there and scan it, you can see what the difference is. The difference is that almost every way of thinking about ourselves and God and each other and redemption and this world and eternity and the past, almost every one of them is bounded set thinking. Even Christianity can be seen this way. Many of us grew up in churches and church families where Christianity was this way. It was bounded set, not centered set. And so as you look at these different world systems, the thing that sets true Christianity apart is the centered set, is Christ, is the atoning work of Christ, is that we don't pay to be holy. God pays for us to get in a right relationship and to be renewed by him and set on that path of holiness. But we have a choice. We can choose to pay. We can follow Christianity under this way of thinking, or we can follow Islam under this way of thinking, or we can follow Buddhism under this way of thinking. We can follow Judaism under this way of thinking. And that's what they were struggling with when this was written, that they were trying to follow Judaism's bounded set while being free by the Jesus. And so they were toggling between two worlds. How do we change? It's so difficult when we've been thinking that way for so long, behaving that way for so long, operating that way for so long. And I can't prove this, but I believe there's a shadowy figure behind the bounded set. I can't help but to think, and I can't prove this from Scripture, but I just notice it by observation. There's a shadowy figure behind the bounded set, and I believe it's the evil one. Sometimes we call him Satan. And I believe that he devised this bounded set to keep us from a living relationship with God over here. And so he impressions on us, even our best of intentions at times, we're following this and we're not following him. And he keeps us insidiously away 
from the living relationship with God. All he has to do is wind us up and get us following beliefs, behaviors, and belonging, and I'm in and they're out, and all that kind of thinking, and we're far from God and far from our living relationship with him because we're living under bounded set thinking, and that's not biblical thinking. It's not God's thinking. It's the world's way of self-atonement and trying to make yourself holy. And God still says, be holy as I am holy through my son, Jesus Christ. In Galatians, Paul writes, who has bewitched you? Who has gotten you off track? You came to Christ first. Why are you trying to follow the rules of men now? Read the book of Galatians. It's all about this bounded set, centered set thinking. It's all about that. And so it takes some time for us to cash that in. How do we get rid of that? How do we do that? We do it by going back to the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. Every moment that I need holiness. And when do I need holiness? Every moment of every day. Driving the car. Taking care of the kids. Interchanging with people. When do I need it? All the time. I need holiness all the time. And so I need Jesus all the time. I need his leadership all the time. I need his presence all the time. That's why he gave us the most excellent Holy Spirit. Listen to what he's called. The Holy Spirit. Who's going to help us be holy? The Holy One. The Holy Spirit. Who draws us into that holy living. This whole idea of substitutionary atonement is all over the world. It is. Sometimes we think it's only in Christianity. But the whole idea that the innocent will somehow pay for the sins of the guilty, which is the Christian way. That's Christian substitutionary atonement. The innocent God pays for the guilty so that the guilty and the innocent are reconciled again. Okay, That's God's substitutionary atonement. But the whole idea of atoning for sins... It's pretty prolific in cultures all over the world. I have one illustration for you. And this comes from a movie that came out a couple of years ago. The movie that came out a couple of years ago was called Seven Pounds. And in the movie Seven Pounds, Will Smith plays a, a young man who's very talented and gifted at the beginning. He's got a lot of money. He's getting ready to get married. And I can't remember if he's texting on his phone or talking on his phone, but he's in a terrible car accident. He lives, but it precipitates the death of a number of people. He spends the entirety of the rest of the movie, right up to the end, trying to atone for his sin. He does that by finding seven people who need seven vital organs that he has that he knows are in good condition. He sets himself up just for the right time and in just the right way that he takes his own life to atone for his sin and to pay back. If that's in a movie created in the United States of America, how prolific is the idea of justice and someone must pay? We all believe it. When I sin, either I believe that I pay, or sometimes when I'm not in a balcony, I make you pay. Because I'm unaware that it's my sin that's precipitating something, so I just blame you. You can atone. You pay the freight. Or there is a third answer, 
And that's God atones. God makes me holy. God helps me see myself on the balcony. God helps me between these two worlds. God sets me up for success in this life. Last point I want to talk to you about this morning is what does centered set living look like? Centered set living calls on the empowerment of the Father. Calls on the empowerment of the Father. Peter writes this. Since you call on a father, circle that phrase, since you call on a father. The word picture that Peter uses here is again, he's using this child parent, child father image through this whole passage. And he uses this word picture here that's of a small child that would actually probably have to cup its hands, it was so little, pull on its father's leg and call out, Dad, need some help down here. I'm little, you're big. I need your help. The term that is used here is of a child calling out for its parent. Help me, Mommy, Daddy, help me. I can't do it on my own. I'm stuck. I've been trying to be holy through my bounded set and my rules and I've tried to behave right and I've tried to belong but sometimes I don't feel like I belong and I don't behave right and my beliefs are probably off and so I need you to come and make me holy and draw me back to the cross, Daddy. Come and help me. Bring me back home. Show me what's most important. I can't be holy without you and the cross and the spirit. I can only atone for myself and someday I will stand before God and so will you. And he will say, who atoned for you? Was it self? Was it other? Or was it my son Christ's? Who atones for you? You can rectify that question today by saying from today forward, it's Jesus who's atoning. I'm going to get on the balcony with him. I'm going to let the Holy Spirit be my guide and my coach. I'm going to call out to the Father 24-7 as I walk between two worlds. As a young man, I kind of learned when to use my dad's name to my advantage. How many of you know what I'm talking about? You learned how to use either the family name or your father's name or your mother's name to your advantage. We lived in a pretty small community. My dad was not a very influential man. He didn't own a large company. We didn't have a lot of money. But he was an honest man who owned a small company. He worked full-time as a steel worker but had a plumbing business on the side. And he ran it with integrity. And in our community, he often would do free work for widows. And when they couldn't pay, he would atone. For the bill. So he was known, and he was also known as paying his bills at the supply house. He never had an outstanding balance at the supply house. Although he had a small business, often wasn't paid, he was able to take care of things with integrity. And so he had a good name in the community. And I knew when to call on that name. I hit an instance when I was 16 years old where I desperately needed to call on the name of my father. He gave me for the first time the list of parts that we needed when we were working 
on a General Electric boiler in Reedsville. And he listed out the, the list of parts that I need. He handed them to me. He said, it's your time to run to the supply house. You've been there before. You know where it's at. And it was back in Lewistown, which is just a number of miles away. So I got into the Dodge Slant, you know, three on the column, Slant six motor, engine van. We parked it on a hill because you had to pop the clutch to get it going. I knew how to do that. I got started. I got to the supply house. I'm standing there, and my dad had given me specific instructions that we need this in 25 minutes because we need to deliver this to the customer and get on to the next customer. We don't have time to waste. So I'm standing there. 15 minutes goes by. I'm trying to, how, fa- how fast can I get back to Reedsville? How fast can that thing go without blowing up? And all this kind of thing. Other people were coming in for parts. They had uniforms on that matched their vans. They had logos on. So they got waited on first. The little 16-year-old kid got pushed to the side. So finally I thought, I'm bringing up my dad's name. I've been here with him before. They know him. The guy looked down the counter and I kind of edged my way in there. And he said, little guy, what are you looking for? What do you need? I said, well, I don't really need much of anything. But my dad, Leon R. Smith Jr., he needs this list of stuff, and I need to have it back in 10 minutes. You're Sonny's boy? I said, not for long if we don't get the parts back there in time. <laughs> there is a vast storehouse for you of resources to help you with the struggle of being holy. And all that you need to do is call on the name of the Father and say, bring it. This one's headed the wrong direction, Lord. This one, I'm, I think I'm getting it turned around, but I need you. I need to be holy like you're holy but I'm living between two worlds and I've got a lot of stress and I don't know how to do it and the only way I'm going to get there is to call on your storehouse and your name, the same name by which I was saved and I am now sanctified, the name by which I will enter heaven's gates. Who, Who atoned for you? Jesus. He paid it all and he makes me holy. And so that's how we exchange the bounded set for the centered set when we call on his name. In these next few minutes, I want you to listen to a recorded song. I want you to listen to it. It was written years ago, but it was re-recorded just about two or three years ago by the same artist who wrote it. When he originally wrote the song, he had not passed through the passage of life that he's through now as being an older man. He wanted to re-record it because he had gone... The name of the song is called Refiner's Fire. He re-recorded it because he has seven children. And during that time of raising those seven children, two of them have Down syndrome. So during that time of raising those children, he had to call out to the father because his parenting dot wasn't headed in the right direction. And it was only under the influence of God's spirit that the parenting dot got Christ-centered again. And he could love and raise and embrace those children just as much as the other five. 
Let's listen to the words of Refiner's Fire as a prayer, maybe from our own heart this morning. Let's listen to the words together. <clears throat> 